If I were to ask you what you think of when I say the word excellent, what might you think? You might think of the best restaurant in town. You might think of the best baseball player. I don't know. The best book you ever read. Something like that. Do you think about the role player that plays on the worst team possible? You don't think about that guy, do you? <laughs> That's not excellent. I mean, compared to what we may be able to do, it would be more excellent than what we do. But would you really think of that person as excellent? <coughs> Anybody ever grow up when you were younger? Did you, did you think, man, when I grow up, I want to be mediocre? Anybody ever thought that? I just want to be average. Most of us think, well, when I grow up, I want to do something, I want to be excellent. I want to do something uh, excellent. We don't think about mediocrity and just being average. And Now, most of the time, we end up being just about that. That's okay in some, some areas. But I want to think about this evening about thinking differently than just being mediocre. Striving for Excellence, striving for something better. Excellence means to superabound. It means to be super good. That's what it means. And so that's what we need uh, to be doing. This morning we talked about how as an individual I can be pleasing to God and how I should be pleasing to God. And that's manifested in the commitment that I give to Him knowing that whatever I commit to Him, He commits for the day of salvation, for His return. He's going to keep those things until that day. So knowing that allows me to be committed 100%. This evening, I'd like to talk about a family of spiritual excellence. About our family being pleasing to God. Because we can be that as individuals, but what are we doing to motivate our family uh, to actually be excellent? Not just, you don't. Raise your kids and you don't think about, okay, I want to raise them to be mediocre in the church. That's not what we have in mind, is it? So what do we do to promote a family of spiritual excellence? And specifically, we're going to look at two people and how they raised their children, raised their family. One being Abraham and a specific instance with Isaac when he took him to uh, offer him up on the altar. The other is Hannah. So we're going to look at it from two perspectives. One from a man and a father and a husband, the other from a mother and a wife and way, the way she reacted. So let's first start with Abraham. We know that he was called by God to offer up his only son, the son of promise, to be offered as a burnt offering to the Lord. And so he gets up the next day and they begin to prepare to take uh, for he and Isaac to go to that altar to, to offer him. Three days later, they're going up and he says to the servants, you stay here. They stay behind. And he goes to that altar and he, he takes Isaac and he gives him some of the wood. So Isaac's carrying this up. And then as he gets there, he ties his son up and he lays him on the altar. And as he raises his hand, the angel stops him and says, don't do it. That's the basic idea. So let's look a little bit at that story. We'll talk about Hannah in just a moment. But the first thing we want to notice from that story, in Genesis 22 and verse 9, says, And they came to the place of which God had told him, 
excuse me. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. You know what's interesting about this story is that there was no doubt in Abraham's mind what he was about to do. Abraham didn't worry about what was going to happen to Isaac. The promise that God gave Abraham was going to be fulfilled. There was no doubt about that. And so he had all the confidence. He said, even if, well, well, we'll read that in just a moment. Let's look at Hebrews 11 and verse 17. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, and Isaac, your seed should be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. You know, Abraham knew, okay, I can go and I can offer Isaac as a sacrifice knowing that God can raise him from the dead if that's what's necessary. And how, where did Abraham get this kind of faith? I had a professor one time. It was a Western civilization class and he had the whole class was based on this, faith versus reason. And I said, why are they exclusive to one another? I contended with him the entire class. He ended up loving me. He gave me a scholarship because I was willing to contend with him. That that's, they're, not, they're not opposed to one another. Why? And his, his proof text was actually Abraham offering Isaac. You know why Abraham was willing to do that? Because God had done it before. When they were well past childbearing age, God had already fulfilled his promise. So God knew, or Abraham knew, God will continue to fulfill this promise. I have that kind of faith, so I'm going to offer him on the altar. And if, I, if need be, God will raise him from the dead. See, that's the kind of faith that we need to instill in our family. The kind of faith that needs to be seen. In James chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Faith is not in a vacuum. Faith is meant to be seen. Faith, a living faith is anyway, because a living faith compels us to act. It compels us to do what God calls us to do, knowing that, having faith and the confidence and the trust in God, that it will all be fine. That even in death, it'll all be fine. Because God is able to raise us up from the dead as well. And he will. So Noah, having that kind of confidence, we can do whatever we need to do for the cause of Christ. But we need to have that kind of faith, and that kind of faith is evident. Now let's talk about Hannah for just a moment. Hannah was married to a man by the name of Elkanah. At least that's how I say it. You can say it, Elkanah, or there might be an even better way of saying it that's more close to Hebrew, Elkanah. I don't know, but I'm going to go with Elkanah. Uh, that's who she was married to. He also had another wife. I don't know how to say her name either, but I'm going with Peninnah. <laughs> <coughs> Now, Peninnah had children. Hannah did not. And yearly, they would go to worship. 
And when they would go to worship, he would give, Elkanah would give the sacrifice portion to Peninnah and her children. He would give a double portion to Hannah because he loved her and because she was barren. She so wanted a child. And so she went to the temple and she, or to the tabernacle and she prayed. And she prayed and she prayed, as, as was said, prayed hard. <laughs> Eli the priest comes along and he sees her doing this. It looks like she's just sitting there talking to herself. And he says, woman, you're drunk. You need to get off the wine. And she says, I'm not drunk. I'm praying for this son. And she makes a vow. And she says, if I get a son, I'll give him to the Lord. He's yours. And so God blesses her with a son. She names him Samuel. And as he grows up, as she gets to, as, as he's weaned, then he is delivered over to the work of the, of the kingdom at the time of Israel as a priest underneath Eli. So that's the story of, of Hannah. And I want to think about her faith for just a moment as we look at 1 Samuel 1 and verse 10. It says, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And so he said, I suppose that you're drunk. She says, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Why do you think she was praying like this? Do you think she went to prayer to God because she didn't think prayers were ever answered? Does that make sense? Or do you suppose she had the kind of faith that was necessary to pour out her soul to the Lord, knowing that God is a faithful God? Trusting God that at least, at the very least, that he was listening to her pray. That's why she prayed. It wasn't a lack of confidence. It was all the confidence that she needed to be able to pour out her soul in such a way. Matthew 6 and verse 31 says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You know, sometimes we might worry, genuinely be concerned about going hungry, or not having money for clothes, or shoes, or something like that. We might have genuine concern about what we're going to eat or drink, or those types of things and a family of spiritual excellence is one that turns to God in prayer and in faith and in confidence. That it establishes our priorities. That's what this verse is talking about. That our, our faith in God motivates us to prioritize our life. And that's what Hannah did. She prioritized her life. It was God first. Confidence in him first. And it was evident in the way that she prayed there. Okay, so let's think now about that idea of Abraham again. In Genesis 22 and verse 7, <coughs> as they were going up, it says, Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I don't know how old Isaac was here, <coughs> but don't you find it interesting? 
If you read the story, it never says that Abraham told Isaac what they were going to do. They just went. They gathered the stuff and they went. So how is it that Isaac says, here's the fire and here's the wood. Where's the lamb? How did he know? How did he even know there was going to be a, a lamb provided at all? Why would they need a lamb if he didn't already know what was going on? He did know. This was normal. This was not the first time Abraham offered a sacrifice. And it's not the first time that his son saw his daddy go make the sacrifice. He went with him. It was commonplace for Abraham and for Isaac to worship together. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, in verse 3, he says, This man went up from the city, from his city yearly, to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. I don't want to look necessarily at Peninnah. This was terrible on her part, what she had done. But I want to look at, at Peninnah in some way, but Hannah and Elkanah. Every year, as was their custom, they went to Jerusalem to worship. He says that, the, the Holy Spirit guides Samuel to write this, as though it were just mundane, almost. Like it was so average, so normal, that that was their custom. That is exactly what needs to happen in a family of spiritual excellence. It needs to be a custom. It needs to be normal. It needs to be common that your family is found in worship, in praise to God. Let's think about that for just a moment as we look at Deuteronomy 11 and verse 18. It says, Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. <coughs> Excuse me. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I want to make something clear here. We're going to talk about the assembly of the morning or in a moment, but notice I'm not just talking about the assembly. This is talking about every day. Every day you are supposed to be in the Word of God. Every day, not only are you supposed to be in it, but you're supposed to live it. Your children are to see that. But not only are you to be in it, not only are you to live it, but you're to teach it to your children. Every day. And this is not talking necessarily, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. Certainly there's a place for it. There is a place for having regular Bible study with your children. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a kind of lifestyle that is so governed by the Word of God that it's normal to talk about the Word of God in your home. It's more organic than it is fixed. You just talk about the Word of God. You talk about the law of God. You talk about ways to please God through His Word and through His will. That's what he's talking about here. A family, a spiritually excellent family, is going to be one who is in the word together. I'm reminded of a, 
of a friend of mine who his son was young and he was so proud of himself he came in the house and he had a newspaper. Now this was back a while when people still read the newspaper. Uh, but he came into the house with a newspaper and he said, Dad, look, I got you the newspaper. And he said, Son, where'd you get this? He says, Well, it was in the street. Okay, but where in the street? Well, it was in front of the neighbor's house. See, they didn't get the paper. <laughs> the neighbor got the paper. And so he said, Son, the Bible talks about how we shouldn't take things from others. And he told him, he talked Bible with him. And Bible principles and how it grieves God to do things like, those th like that. And so he made him take the newspaper back. That's the type of thing that we need to be talking to our children about. It's not wrong. It should be something that's promoted to talk about pleasing God in our home. James 5 and verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. <coughs> Prayer needs to be a normal part of your home. And not just at dinner time. It needs to be commonplace. Singing needs to be a part of your home. That you hear singing of God's praises. That always reminds me of Lori's grandmother. She sang all the time. Now, she didn't always sing gospel songs, but I'll tell you when she certainly did. When anybody was having an argument. She hated when people had arguments. And she'd start singing angry words every time. <laughs> she wanted to remind everybody that that's not something she liked. And she pointed it back to God, didn't she? Through what she was doing. Singing ought to be commonplace. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 12 says, Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. You know, there was a time in Israel, every seven years, gather everybody together, everybody, and read the law. Have you ever just read the law? Whew. It's pretty boring. I'm not a lawyer. Lawyers may think, look at that and go, woohoo, this excites me. I don't know. We can ask the Benoits if they come by. It's boring to me, though. I have to admit, part of what's boring about it to me is that I don't have to do all those things. I don't have to figure out how big the tabernacle is supposed to be and all that stuff. But God says, I want that read to the children. Why? So they'll learn. They'll learn my law. Gather them together so that everyone can learn. In the New Testament, we find 1 Corinthians 14, verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Just like Abraham, Isaac was with him when he worshipped. When Elkanah, Elkanah and Hannah went to worship, they all went together. When we come to the assembly, our children, our family, we need to be together. Because it's there that all of us can learn. All of us can be encouraged. And we need to make it a priority to attend the assembly. There's far too many, far too many that I've seen lost 
because they refused to go to church regularly, committedly, I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it anyway, because you understand what I'm saying, that have lost their children to the world because of that. Because their God was baseball. Their religion was baseball or something like it. Or their religion was swimming or diving. I've seen it. Or track and field. doesn't matter. Get whatever sport, whatever activity that was. It could be banned. It could be anything. But they sacrifice attendance of the church and they will not sacrifice a practice. They will not sacrifice the tournament. They won't sacrifice the game. And if you make that your religion, you know what your kids are going to do? They're not going to follow the religion of God. They're going to go do those things. This needs to be the priority. And that's what excellence does. Not mediocrity, not average. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about a family of spiritual excellence. And how we can be a family that pleases God. Abraham was going to do it. Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. Abraham was going to do what any of us would consider unthinkable. Parents, you going to do this? It's a tough one, isn't it? Hard to think about, but that's exactly what he was going to do. God asked him, you give me your son Isaac. And he said, here he is. Hannah, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls and one ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me the petition which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. She dedicated her son to the Lord. You must, if you're going to be a spiritually excellent family, you must dedicate your children to the Lord. Make him the most important priority in your children's life, not just in your own. Give them to God. In Matthew 10 and verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Your children need to know that your children are not nearly as important as God is. They have to know that. Your spouse needs to know the same thing. That God is your priority and your most important relationship. In Ephesians 6 and verse 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. I want you to consider your job for just a moment. Your goal as a parent is not to get your kids into the best school or to make sure that they have the best job. Your job is not to make sure that they become an NFL player or an NFL cheerleader. Your job as a parent is not to make sure that they become a rock star or that they get first chair in the Philharmonic. 
Your job, your only job as a parent is to get them to heaven. That's it. You can't do that if you don't dedicate them to the Lord. That's what Abraham did. That's what Hannah did. They dedicated their children to the Lord. Colossians 3 and verse 1 and 2 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. That's your priority. Set your mind. Have a fixed mind on things above. You know what? If you want to be mediocre, if that's your goal, okay. That won't be pleasing to God, and that's what we're trying to strive for. But if that's what you want, then go ahead. You can try to get by. You can try to be average. You can try to just not do enough bad things or just barely do enough good things. And you do that, and you sacrifice your kid's eternity. That's what you're doing. You can settle for mediocrity, but I think you really want more for your family than that. You really want excellence, don't you? I don't, I don't know of any parent that says, you know what, I just want my kids to be mediocre. We want the best for our kids. You know what the best for your kids is? Eternity. Jesus. That's the best thing for your kids. That's the best you have to offer. So a family of spiritual excellence, and one that pleases God is one that's a family of faith. A family that worships God. And a family that is dedicated to the Lord. Is that you? Does that describe your family? As a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife? Do you look at the example of Abraham and think, oh, that's not me? Do you look at the example of Hannah and say, that's not me either? Then we stand ready to help you through that. If you need the prayers of the church, We'll pray for you. We will pray as fervently as Hannah did. Because God's able to answer prayers and will answer our prayers. And he'll help us. Let's give him confidence, our confidence in that, that he'll do that. So if you have a need of the church, let's take it to him. Let's dedicate ourselves to the Lord in prayer this afternoon. So if we can help you, assist you in any way, Please let us know by coming forward and sitting on the front as we stand and as we sing.